I like to think of God as. Whatever comes after that is blasphemy. It doesn't matter what you like to think of God as. Because if He is God, what matters is the truth and the reality of who He is. That's what matters. Immediately he made his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when, he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened." I wonder if you might listen to the following phrases and if someone here might tell me what the common denominator is for all of these well-known common phrases that we hear and use every day, such as, they made a scapegoat out of him. She is the apple of my eye. He took the words right out of my mouth. I made it just by the skin of my teeth. Another one bites the dust. A leopard cannot change his spots. You got to read the writing on the wall and go the extra mile but it's like the blind leading the blind and we made it just in the 11th hour. Anybody recognize the commonality between all those phrases? They're all biblical. The origin of all those phrases is a biblical origin and that's just a small sampling of the literally hundreds of phrases that we use in our English language, almost never recognizing the source of those, at least not while we're using them. We use phrases all the time that find their origin in the Scriptures without hardly giving a thought to what the uh, origin of this, of this phrase is, and oftentimes using the phrase in ways that are completely different from how the Bible used the phrase. But as we think about these phrases that have made their way into our English language, there is one of which I'm thinking that you're probably ahead of me, and you're also thinking of this phrase too. It's the phrase, walk on water. Don't we use that phrase a lot? We use it sometimes to mean that we think very highly of someone, that uh, we think that they just walk on water. Or sometimes it might be a very negative thing when somebody uses it about themselves. You know, they, well, they just think that they walk on water. And so it can, it can really mean that, that someone has a very high opinion of themselves or that you have a very high opinion of someone else. Now, neither of those are anything remotely close to how the Bible uses the phrase we wouldn't find it in the passage before us of Jesus walking on the water. This is, as we said earlier, one of the most profound instances in Mark's gospel. And we'll take a couple of Sundays to walk through it because the meaning is not shallow. It is very profound and it will take us a while to dig through it. So let's get started from verse 45. From verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So we begin here with Mark's favorite word. His favorite word is immediately. 
he writes, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, the, the word that's translated he made is a word that's very forceful. It's very strong in the original. It means something close to compelled or constrained. It has the meaning of Jesus imposing his will onto the disciples as though the disciples did not themselves wish to get into the boat. They didn't want to get into the boat, but Jesus imposed his will upon the disciples and he compelled them or he made them to get into the boat. So it carries it with this this idea that the disciples' desire was different from Jesus' desire and Jesus' desire, being the master, his desire overtook theirs. It overruled theirs and he made them get into the boat. So we immediately have an issue to deal with that we must think through and it's the oddness of what Mark just said, the strangeness of what Jesus said, that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. And the strong implication is that they very strongly did not want to get into the boat. So why the oddness? Why the making them get into the uh, the boat? Furthermore, we read that Jesus then dismissed the crowd. So Jesus, in essence here, he's dismissing the, the people, and he's dismissing the disciples. By the way, he's going to go on to dismiss the storm. So there's a lot of dismissing going on. So he dismisses the people. Now we know that there's two ways to dismiss someone. And this works the same way in our language as it does in the original Greek. But you can dismiss someone by A, giving them permission that they no longer are required to be in your presence. By, you, know, you give them permission. You, don't, you, can, you can go. You can be dismissed. But another way that you can use the word dismissed is to not give permission for them to leave, but in order, but it give them an order, no longer to give them permission to stay. And so dismissing someone can mean both. It can mean giving them permission to leave or not giving them permission to stay. You must go. Okay. So we use it the, both ways in our English, same way in, in the Greek. So Jesus dismisses the crowd. And when he dismisses the crowd, we should think of him not giving them permission to go, but Jesus making them to go. So this crowd, thousands and thousands of people, they've been with Jesus all day. Jesus has fed them. And now Jesus makes them to leave. He makes them to go. He dismisses the crowd in this way. Also, he dismisses or he makes the disciples to get into the boat. So the, one, of the, one of the aspects of the oddness here is that, first of all, Jesus, just one day before, he invited the disciples with them. It was his idea. He said to them, you are tired, you're exhausted, you haven't even had time to eat. Come away with me. So he invites them with himself. Come away with me. Let's go find this place that's desolate, that's separate, and let's rest and be together. Now, just less than a day later, Jesus makes the disciples to leave. In addition to that, he makes the people to leave. So Jesus, as we know, Jesus is never controlled by the crowds. It may appear this way at some times, but Jesus is never controlled by the crowds. Jesus is always in control of the crowds, although many times it appears as though the crowds are so large and so overwhelming. Nevertheless, Jesus shows his authority here by dismissing the crowds. So we ask ourselves the question, why the why this change in mood? Why the change in Jesus dismissing the crowd and making the disciples leave? So it is here that we have the advantage of having four Gospels that we can sometimes cross-reference with one another and put some of the pieces together to get a more complete picture. John affords for us one piece of information that's very helpful. If we were to look in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, 
or just look down at your lap because somebody so conveniently put this together for you. Just look at John 14, I'm sorry, John 6, verse 14 through 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, meaning the multiplication of the food, when the people saw the sign, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So they are quite excited about what's happened. This is the prophet. Notice it's properly capitalized there, speaking of the prophet that was to come. This is the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus again withdrew to the mountain by himself. So John narrates the same instance by giving us this other piece of information saying that Jesus perceived that the crowd is now reaching this fever pitch of excitement. They are getting all starry-eyed about who Jesus is and they're beginning to see visions, visions of Jesus displacing the Roman rule, displacing the Herodian rule, shaking off from Israel this Roman oppression as well as the Herodian oppression, shaking all of that off of Israel, once again establishing Israel as a sovereign nation and Jesus is on the throne. And the crowd is getting all glassy-eyed and excited about that and they are, in Jesus' perception, about to take him by force and to make him king. That's the context into which we must now read Jesus' dismissal of the crowd and the dismissal of the, of the disciples. But before we go any further, let's just pause right there and let's just make a brief observation about the ridiculous irony of what we just read, that they are about to take him by force and make him king. Does that strike anybody as, well, I don't know, foolish? To by force make someone your king? Isn't that just an, an oxymoron? Isn't that a self-contradiction? To make to impose your will on someone in order to put them in a position of rulership over you, over you. That's utterly ridiculous to make someone against their wishes to be your ruler or your authority or your king over you. So it's quite ridiculous. We often, though, if you think about it, we often do the same sorts of thing, or at least try to do the same sorts of things today. Those that we appoint leaders over us, we have this impression here in the Western world and our democracy here in the West. We have this impression that our leaders work for us, and we like to think that. Whether or not that's really true or not, I'll just leave that up to you. But we have that impression that we are the ones who are in charge and we're the ones who put the rulers and the people there and it's us imposing our will onto them. But that's a completely foreign idea to this idea of a king. That's why we don't have a king. That's why we have elected rulers. Because a king is not one who rules by the permission of those he, rule, or he rules over. He exerts his will over them instead of the other way around. And so the very idea of making someone king against their will is a completely nonsensical idea because if you imposed your will upon them to rule over you, it's really you ruling them instead of the other way around. So we see the foolishness of that. But the reason I draw attention to all of this We'll see in just a moment how that plays into the story. But the reason I draw attention to, to this is just, this is a wonderful insight into the human heart. The scriptures always provide for us a wonderful insight into our own heart if we will just often take the time to look and to think of what the scriptures are showing to us. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It pierces into our heart and it knows us and it shows ourselves to us. And here it's showing us something about the fallen human heart. The fallen human heart has a desire, a propensity to fool itself into thinking that it rules over those who rule it or its gods. So we see this all the way from the garden, don't we? We see this throughout the history of Israel as they would create these idols. You remember Isaiah 44. Remember that passage in Isaiah 44? It's rather a humorous passage where Isaiah is talking about the foolishness of idolatry. And he says that this person will, will, this man will take a log and from half of the log, he will cut it into firewood by which he warms himself and cooks his food. And the other half of the log, he fashions an idol and then bows down to it. And Isaiah's point is, do you see the foolishness of such a thing as that? But really, that's the same consistent picture that we see throughout the Old Testament. Remember as they fashioned the golden calf? And then Aaron says, behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. That's not your gods that brought you out of Egypt. You just made it. How foolish to convince yourself or try to convince yourself that you just created the God who rules over you. It's the same thing that's happening here with Jesus. They want to take him by force and make him king. Now, this is pointing into something that's very important for us to see in our own hearts. And it's the propensity, it's the tendency for fallen human beings to try to make God into our own image. Now, if you could just bridge the gap between these two instances, between this and what I'm saying now, if you can just make this connection, you'll see the valid connection here. That human mankind, fallen mankind, has within itself this desire to make a God for itself that it really is in charge of. Or in other words, it made out, we made it in our own image. Okay. So the way that that often looks in the modern world is this. Anytime you hear the sentence that begins this way, I like to think of Jesus as... And fill in the blank. And it doesn't matter what you fill in the blank with. I like to think of God as whatever comes after that is blasphemy. Whatever comes after that is idolatry. It doesn't matter what you like to think of God as. Because if He is God, then it doesn't matter what you think of Him. What matters is how He has revealed Himself to you And what matters is the truth and the reality of who he is. That's what matters, not what we like to think of him as. And so do you see the connection between wanting to make Jesus a king by force and modern man saying, well, I like to have this picture in my mind of Jesus as this type of a savior or God as this type of a God. It's the same thing as mankind reaching up and taking hold of God and saying, I'm going to make you God over me when in reality, You're the one who thinks that you have authority over them. Okay, You see the connection? So they tried to take him by force and make him king. Foolishness, though, as as it is, this is what is the context or the occasion for what we read of in verse 45. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and he dismissed the crowd. So he's going to dismiss the crowd and he's he's going to make his disciples leave. All of that is on the heels of Jesus' perception that things are getting out of control. This 
attitude within the crowd, this, this feeling, this growing excitement that Jesus is the one who is going to be the political ruler. We're going to make him king. If he's not willing to be king, we'll make him king because he's got what it takes. He's got the charisma. He just fed all this crowd. He teaches like nobody else ever teaches. There's all the miracle stories and everything. He's got what it takes for us to make him king and lead us out of this slavery to Rome and the Herodians and all the abuse and all that sort of thing. That is what is the is the occasion, so to speak, for Jesus' making them all to dismiss. So he makes them go to the, he tells them to go to the other side. He makes them get in the boat and he tells them to go to Bethsaida. Now as they leave for Bethsaida, we remember this that last week we mentioned that as they go for the the, the location there where they're going to do the feeding, we mentioned that in Luke chapter nine, Luke tells us that they were in the region of Bethsaida. So they're in the region of Bethsaida, yet Jesus told them to get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. So that gets a little bit confusing for us until we realize this, that there are actually two Bethsaidas. Now, Bethsaida, there was a Bethsaida on the west side of the Sea of Galilee and another Bethsaida on the east side. The Bethsaida that was on the east side was known as Bethsaida Julius. The other Bethsaida on the east, on the western side, was on the side of Israel. That was known as Bethsaida of Galilee. So two Bethsaidas, two cities, two villages that went by the same name, which really wasn't all that unusual because the word Bethsaida literally means house, Beth, house of the fishermen. So it's not hard to imagine that two villages on the Sea of Galilee both went by the name house of fishermen. So they leave Bethsaida Julius, which is on the east side or the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the northeastern shore, and they're going to cross over to Bethsaida of Galilee. That's where Peter and Andrew are from. They're going to cross over to there. But just by uh, a note here, just let your eyes drop down to, uh, well, look down to the end of the passage first. If you look down to the end of the passage, the beginning of the next passage, verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at where? Gennesaret. So they didn't make it to Bethsaida. So Jesus sent them to Bethsaida. The storm is going to blow them so far off course that they're not going to make it to their destination. And then if you flip over and just let your eyes float down to chapter 8, all the way down to chapter 8 and verse 22, we read, and they came to Bethsaida. So it takes two more chapters for them to actually get to Bethsaida. So all of what happens in the remainder of chapter 6, which isn't much, and then chapter 7 and most of chapter 8, all of that happens as they're trying to get to Bethsaida that they originally set out to go for. So just the point to observe there is all of this that happens, happens because they were blown off course. So there's nothing. There's no coincidences. There's no happenstances. All of these things occurred. Jesus healing the blind man. Jesus uh, encountering the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus healing the deaf man. The second feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. All of those things take place supposedly because the disciples had been blown off course. But of course we know there's no coincidences. They weren't blown off course. They were actually on course. But all those things happened because the disciples didn't make it to actually to where they were headed to. So he makes the disciples dig into the boat and go to the other side while he dismisses the crowd. So this fever pitch excitement over this man Jesus and what he's now doing in, the, in, the, in Israel and the excitement over him being a political leader, this is what is now going to drive the story. This is what's going to drive the story along. Jesus is going to need to, to rescue the disciples. 
But now, if we think back to last week's passage, remember last week, one of the things that we observed was that Jesus will meet the needs of the people, but he will meet their greatest need first. You remember that? Their greatest need was to hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. But they also needed to be fed. And so Jesus will meet their needs, but He'll meet the greatest need first, which is their need to hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word. Afterwards, He will meet the lesser need, which is to feed them. Jesus is going to do the same thing in this passage. He's going to meet the needs of the disciples. They will need to be rescued but they have a far greater need and Jesus will meet that need first. And the meeting of that need is the basis for the whole story. So now let's begin looking at how Jesus is going to meet their greatest need. So verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus now has this second period of prayer that we read about. There's three times of prayer in Mark's gospel, three instances in which Jesus is said to be praying and we're told something about his prayer. All three of those instances, well, we saw the first one in chapter one, as Jesus leaves before the sun comes up and he goes to the desolate place to pray. The second one is here. And then the third one will take place in chapter 14 in a place that we all are familiar with, a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Those are the three instances of prayer in Mark's gospel. Now, what's interesting is the commonalities that all three of those instances of prayer have. They all take place at night. They all take place when Jesus is alone. They all take place when Jesus is in a desolate place. They all take place within the context of of Jesus either being interrupted by his disciples or inhibited by his disciples in some way. The first time Jesus was praying, the, the disciples come and interrupt him. Where you been, Jesus? This time when Jesus is praying, he will again be interrupted by his disciples because he will be called to their rescue. The third time he will be inhibited by his disciples because his disciples can't stay awake to pray. So all three instances are at night. All three instances, Jesus is alone in a desolate place. All three instances, Jesus is either interrupted or inhibited by his disciples. And lastly, all three instances take place within the context of a crisis. A crisis of temptation, so to speak. Jesus is being tempted and the temptation is always the same. The temptation is to bypass the cross and take glory without the cross. The temptation is always for Jesus to abandon or forsake his mission in exchange for the easy way or the popular way. All right, so just as a reminder, chapter 1 took place at the end of that night of healing. And the disciples come to say, Jesus, what are you doing by yourself? The crowds are all excited. They're all behind you. And Jesus responds by saying, let's go to another place. Now we see this instance takes place in the same context. The crowd has reached this fever pitch. They're about to take Jesus by force and make him king. And once again, we find Jesus at night alone praying. The third instance is the same in which the temptation once again is to Jesus to not take this cross the next day, to not drink the cup of the cross the next day. All three instances at night, alone, deserted, interrupted by disciples, and praying over the temptation to fail or to abandon his mission. Now, you can believe that's coincidence if you like, but I think that it's clear that Mark has a... a, an agenda to teach us something about Jesus' prayer, something about the temptation that he is undergoing. 
and something about the reason why it is He sent the disciples away. Because the plan totally changed, didn't it? The plan was to go away with Jesus and receive some much needed rest. Now, instead of not only not getting the day of rest, in place of a day of rest, they got another day of long, strenuous work. So we might say, well, certainly now is time for a day of rest. But then instead, Jesus sends them away. And we all know to understand that in Jesus, as Jesus sends them away, He's sending them knowingly into a storm. 